Welcome to the 375th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Chip Jones, author of the book, The Organ Thieves, the shocking story of the first heart transplant in the segregated South. Stay tuned for my interview with Chip Jones. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Chip Jones, author of the book, The Organ Thieves, The Shocking Story of the First Heart Transplant in the Segregated South. Chip has been reporting for nearly 30 years for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the Roanoke Times, Virginia Business, and others. As a reporter for the Roanoke Times, he was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for his work on the Pittston Coal Strike. Chip, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your book, Organ Thieves, the shocking story of the first heart transplant in the segregated South yet, can you describe what happened to Bruce Tucker in May of 1968? Sure. He uh, was a factory worker a black man. He was ending his work week with some friends sitting on a low brick wall behind an Esso station up on Church Hill, which is named for uh, Patrick Henry's uh, St. John's Church, uh, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, a little historical area there. Um, and he was passing the time and had the unfortunate uh, mishap of falling off a wall and hitting his head. Severe uh, head injury, rushed to the uh, by ambulance to the nearest emergency room at what was then the Medical College of Virginia. He was uh, conscious when he arrived. His vital signs were normal for someone with a head injury, but they were okay. He uh, soon lapsed into a coma, and with in less than twenty four hours, roughly about twenty one hours, really. Uh, the surgeons at the hospital were removing life support from him um, and just made the decision to make him an unwilling or unwitting donor of his heart. And while they were at it, they took both his kidneys. At the same time that the surgeons 
who had been looking for uh, a, a donor such as Mr. Tucker for some time. At that same time, uh, tragically, uh, Mr. Tucker's brother, William, was trying to find him, frantically trying to find him, uh, from his nearby uh, shoe repair shop, Tucker's Shoe Repair, which had been there many years, not far from the hospital. And he was making calls, and so was a uh, a friend, a lady friend of Mr. Tucker's was frantically trying to find him, and they got no confirmation of where he was or no, no, no information. Uh, it wasn't until uh, nearly two days later when William Tucker was talking to the funeral director that he asked them the very shocking and sobering question, uh, William, did you know that Bruce's heart is missing? And so are his kidneys. And that's how the book begins. Wow. And so can you explain uh, who received his heart? The recipient was a gentleman named Joseph Klett. He was a businessman from Orange, Virginia, north of Richmond. He was severely ill with heart disease. Uh, he had no idea where the heart was coming from, nor did Mr. Klett's wife. It was just they were there to to be treated. and. The, he was seen as, as someone who would be a good candidate for a heart transplant because uh, you had to be severely near death to, to be considered uh, for such an experimental procedure. And how did the story about Bruce Tucker and his death and the subsequent harvesting of his heart and kidneys, how did that story originally reach the press about Tucker and what happened to him? Well, it came out very slowly. It took several days before Mr. Tucker's name actually uh, was leaked, which was kind of an interesting process for me as a former reporter to see how the institution of the hospital had kept that uh, under wraps. And the only reason the name came out was when... Uh, the uh, a night desk person at the uh, Richmond Times Dispatch uh, took an obituary from a, this small funeral home down in rural Virginia, Stony Creek, Virginia, near Petersburg. Takes take and and takes the uh, obit and the the funeral director, the same person who had just notified William Tucker about this shocking event, said to the person taking the obit, uh, hey, uh, this is the guy they're talking about in this all the stories about the historic heart transplant, because the headlines were Virginian surgeons do first heart transplant. So the funeral director not only was, you know, breaking the bad news, but he was kind of proud in some ways that his, his client was part of this historic event. Well, at that point, the obit writer took that information over to the medical reporter who put it together that night and had it in the paper the next day. That was Tuesday after the Saturday uh, uh, transplant. And so how did you learn about Bruce Tucker's case and and how did you decide to write a book about this? Uh, I... I worked for a, sort of a second career as a communications director at the uh, local medical society, Richmond Academy of Medicine, which has a um, a vast uh, reserve of oral histories and, and lots of historical things. And and I I actually began uh, thinking about this as a possible book 
idea because I had written three books on military history and I was waiting for another good nonfiction book idea to come along. And when I heard about this historic transplant, what what I I gravitated toward was the name, a familiar name from the past, which was uh, Dr. Christian Barnard. And Barnard, as, as you probably know, and a lot of your listeners know, but some of the younger ones may not know, was once a medical superstar who I always sort of say was like Dr. Anthony Fauci meets Bill Gates. I mean, he was on every co- uh, cover of the old magazines and, and newspapers. And, and so basically, uh, I was fascinated by the fact that Christian Bernard had studied under those same heart transplant surgeons who had taken the heart from uh, Mr. Tucker. He had studied less than a year before he, Bernard, won the heart transplant race. And essentially, he had taken their he had taken their uh, techniques, especially using extreme cold to preserve organs. Uh, he had taken those back to to Cape Town, and uh, and was he was a very little known surgeon at the time. He took the chance and did the first heart transplant. Afterwards, at Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, there was a lot of hurt feelings in a sense that they'd kind of been uh, robbed of the opportunity to, to to win this race, which they. They had hoped at some point to do, but they had not. And by the time, six months later, when Mr. Tucker was rolled into the emergency room, I've always said it was like he was in the crosshairs of history. He he arrived at the wrong place and the wrong time for a black man, working man, to have a little bit of liquor on his breath. No one looking for him, apparently, which was not true, as the book shows. Uh, and uh, basically with no clout. And he was viewed as, you know, as I say in the book, a doctor on the scene at that time told me he was viewed as, quote unquote, a charity patient who would never pay his bills. And that's when I learned about what happened to Bruce Tucker, the, my imagination was fired early on by the idea of a book about kind of a parallel book to um, to the uh Space Race, The Heart Race, you know, The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe, who was from Richmond, incidentally, always, always you know, loved his, his books. And I thought there could be a book there about the heart transplant race and how it kind of wove through Richmond. But once, once uh, Jeff, once I learned about what had transpired with Bruce Tucker and then his family and, and trying to get some type of justice, and, which they never got. Um, it turned from sort of a work of, of my imagination about history. It was much more driven by the moral and ethical failures that happened and much more a book about social justice. Well, I, th- you, you, I think you alluded to it um, in, in your, in your uh, last answer, but I, I'm curious, do you have a sense of the mindset of the doctors um, in the hospital in 1968 um, did they think that they just had control over his body? And were there any kind of ethical discussions? The only discussions to that that happened happened on the fly in basically less than, you know, less than uh, it was about 21 hour period, but really over a period of about 10 hours with a very low level uh medical examiner who was on duty. He was an assistant medical examiner. And the doctors had so much more power than he had that they essentially got the outcome 
that they want, especially one doctor in particular, Dr. David Hume, who was the head of the surgery department. You know, he was a he was a type AAA surgeon. He was a very smart man. And 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 those to to answer your question about you know where where was the um, the regulation or the or the ethical framework in Richmond at that point and in other hospitals around the country there was not the framework we have today of organ uh, transplantation of the laws that were passed in the eighties there was not that uh, the the lawyers themselves who represented these doctors called them the uh, the gods in white coats. They, they had they had really almost complete a power and authority inside their uh, their departments and inside the hospital. The administrators were very much on the sideline, and even though the law in Virginia at that point required a twenty four hour waiting period, the medical examiner decided to allow them to uh, just ignore it because if they waited 24 hours, his heart wouldn't have been viable. Just another historical fact at that point was there was a lot of changing uh, thinking about the nature of what constituted death. And that's, a, that's also a, a theme of my, in my book. Um, and, it, you know, this is a topic that as I read more medical ethics uh, about ethics, uh, transplantation ethics, it, it still is not completely settled, at least ethics, uh, out in the real world. And at that point, the prevailing thought among more progressive doctors, and these guys were not from the South, they were from, they were from Boston or they were from Chicago. Um, they were, they, it was their mindset that, you know, the, the guys in Harvard, the Harvard Ad Hoc Commission on Brain Death, which was issued a report after the Tucker uh, transportation, uh, excuse me, transplantation. Um, the thinking was that um, we need to, to, to uh, follow the law, but there's going to be times when we're basically kind of going to bend it, bend the rules because the law it has not caught up with science. And that's exactly what happened in this case. It took, it took about five years before Virginia passed its first law that allowed brain death in the definition of death in the state code. And Virginia was the second state in the country to pass that. So, um, you know, it was not settled law and it was um, it was uh, left in the hands of the doctors. Well, I know that there was a legal case brought against the Medical College of Virginia over Bruce Tucker's transplant yeah. Um, or harvesting, I should say. Uh -huh. um, can you can you tell us about that case and the lawyer who sued? Sure. Well, Doug Wilder uh, was the was the lawyer, and he was. And that was another reason, uh, Jeff, that I got interested in this as a book because Doug Wilder is a huge historical figure, certainly in Virginia and for the United States. He was the first elected uh, African American to, to become governor of any state, um, and. Uh, at that point in 1968, uh, he got a phone call from from a very distraught William Tucker, who'd read about Mr. Wilder in the in the papers, and asked him to represent the family. and And right away, Doug Wilder began asking tough questions. And um, within um, a couple of years, he took about two years to finally file this civil complaint. It was the first uh, wrongful death lawsuit in the country uh, about that, that had to do with heart transplants. It took two years to come to trial. And as the readers will, will see, it was a case, uh, it was a David and Goliath 
case. You know, Wilder being the David, he was a one one man operation. He was a criminal attorney. He was making a living doing cases all day. He he had a he had a difficult road to hoe to to fight the full faith and credit and legal uh, power of the state of Virginia. And as he told me, he gave me the first interview. He told me in 45 years, he never wanted to talk about it. He said that, you know, he knew going in that the this was going to be a tough case because the state of Virginia was not going to kind of back down from this wonderful historic accomplishment. And that's how it unfolded and how the, the state managed to line up all these same uh, brilliant uh, neurosurgeons from Harvard and, and other universities um, and ethicists that came in and they said, you know, basically. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. He wasn't going to live. They did a good thing with his heart. And that was, and, and they convinced the jury. The judge allowed it in, even though um, brain death was not in the state code. So it was, again, one of these things where, in Mr. Wilder's view, you know, it was all about, you know, the, the, the racial uh, or the power dynamic, I should say, really. But it also had the racial undertones, of course, uh, because the, the man had no power. And uh, there was a feeling certainly by Mr. Wilder when I interviewed him that um, there was they, they at that point in time, 1972, the, the racial situation in Richmond was still very unsettled. That's why we have segregated South in, in the top, in the subtitle, because the South was very slow to truly desegregate and the schools were not desegregated at that point. So it was a very, very touchy case. Well, and, and I should point out that for those listeners who aren't um, uh, political junkies, that, that Doug Wilder, the lawyer that we're mentioning later, became the governor of Virginia, um, just for just as an FYI. I'm, I'm curious, was there ever any type of acknowledgement or apology by any of the physicians or um, uh, surgeons, especially, especially as it relates to the racial angle? No, there, there, there really wasn't. Um, I, I look for that, and and I know that um, there was 
recently, this story really hasn't stopped unfolding, Jeff, because for the first time in 50 years, the the now uh, VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University uh, School of Medicine and, and the Medical College of Virginia Foundation, they actually put a a kind of a, um, a a sort of apology on an old article about Dr. Lauer from several years ago. I just learned about that when a reporter was interviewing me last week. And I said, you know, that's the first time they've sort of said his name. And to answer your question, the surgeons themselves, they really felt like they were they were doing their job to try to save uh, Mr. Kled's life, and their their attitude was that they weren't uh, they weren't the ones in charge of Mr. Tucker, and that's how it came across in the trial. You know, they weren't his treating physician, and and this is uh, I did not I did not ever hear regret from either one of them, and and sadly one of them, as as your readers will see or the readers of the book will see, one of them uh, didn't live that much longer after the trial, so. Uh, but to answer your question, no, there was no, never any formal apology or even informal apology that I know of because I've been in touch with the Tucker family. Well, in the segregated South, there are certainly incidents of African-Americans being used for medical research, um, uh, often against their will, I should add. Did you study any of those other incidents when you were researching your book? Yes, yes. I I quickly pivoted to trying to tell the story of how, not only in the South, but in the North as well, the entire U.S. medical system was built on the the uh, backs of black Americans. And that's, that goes back to Harvard in the, in the late 1700s and into the 1800s, all through the 19th century, the way that, the way that dissection was taught, and that was the only hands-on class in medical schools, everything else was book learning. So the hands-on classes, the anatomy classes were, uh, were supplied with bodies by grave robbers, uh, and, uh, uh, body snatchers, as they're called, or resurrectionists, which is another strange, strange term. And this 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 happened up and down the East Coast, uh, including Richmond. And it, it went on longer, I think, in, in the South, up to the dawn of the 20th century. And they these guys would work with um, uh, most most medical colleges had somebody called a body man and often was, at least in the South, African-American. And he would uh, he would look at funerals during the day and spock them out and then meet criminal uh, groups or, or gangs of, of people who would dig them up and uh, and take them back into this very strange building, the Egyptian building that's still here in Richmond uh, and uh, take them in and take them to the basement and prepare them for classes the next day. This man at, at, at the Medical College of Virginia has a very colorful career. There's been a documentary made about him. It's called Chris Baker. He actually lived there for decades and decades up to uh, close to 1920. And again, this is what kind of blew my mind in, in my research, um, Jeff, you know, because my father was born before then. So it was like, I'm reading this, I'm thinking, this is stuff that you think of as, you know, part of, well, it's in Dickens, you know, A Tale of Two Cities. Um sure. You know, so it just it it, but it, it bled over, uh, and and it was stopped at some point. But the lack of dignity and 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 treatment of bodies in a, in a way you would think would be uh, ethical or or dignified that didn't start until 
way later, maybe in the midnight, uh, in the 19, like 50s or so, 40s maybe. But there's a lot of old uh, pictures. Medical students were kind of like frat boys and they would play games and do really awful things with the bodies. And uh, there's pictures of them that I said, they're really creepy. And that that's part of the story. I really try not to hammer on too much in the book because there's enough weird kind of macabre things in the organ thieves for any one reader. But it has to be understood that this was the context of, of uh, medical education that these practices bled over into the 20th century. And then there's a lot in my book about, you know, the very uh, explosive incendiary uh, racial situation, political situation in Richmond at that time too. And that also contributed to the police never finding William Tucker, even though the hospital said they were trying to find him. Um, it was it was just all messed up. And one side didn't know what the other was doing. The surgeon didn't know that William Tucker was calling the front desk. And uh, later on, the most shocking thing was when he found his own business card in his dead brother's pockets and his card had been there all along if someone had just called him and let him know. And at the very least, the family could have visited him and made some decisions about what was going to uh, become of him. Sure. Well, the 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 transplant and the harvesting that you write uh-huh. about was in 1968, uh-huh. and here we are in 2020 with a global pandemic. Yeah, um, and and we're seeing that there's still a disparity of healthcare mm-hmm. for African Americans. Mm-hmm. Do you do you address that in the book, or I mean, obviously the book was written before the pandemic. Yeah. What what are your thoughts about that? Sure, in terms of that ongoing disparity. Yeah, I think. I think what's in the book that applies to now, of course, it's not it, it's not in um, the, the issue of disparity is in the book. And the, and the issue of what's known as historical trauma is in the epilogue of the book, because uh, the, the, the Tucker case uh, has now become more of a part of the education at the School of Medicine, whether it's because of my work or not. I honestly don't know. But but it is part of it is part of the, the, the historical thread here of thing. It's like how not to do something. But to get to your point about now is I've heard from a number of African American scholars and and others in the medical community that that the suspicions in the uh, in communities of color, black, brown, m- many different minority groups, those suspicions linger for a lot longer than I think I think than I knew, you know, as a as a white male person raised in privilege. Um I never knew I was I was being interviewed by a a not old African American scholar recently. He said he grew up in New York and he said, Oh yeah, we were told never to go into a hospital because because they're just gonna cut you. Now why those suspicions are still there, um uh, that's that's a whole other realm of research. And my book is not an academic book, by the way. It, it, it's a popular history. You know, it's sure. a non-fiction And it's meant to present things to people that, you know, some of this, some of the academics might say, well, we knew about that. Well, you know, I think the role for me as a writer, as an investigative a reporter has always been that you bring out things that may have been sitting there under people's noses for a long time. And here is for a half a century. Um, and, and I started piecing it together uh, because I knew that that most people don't know about, for example, the historical trauma that a lot of African-Americans have felt over the decades or even centuries and how that goes down to 
when I talked to Doug Wilder, he talked about he grew up in Richmond. He was told, don't get you don't go down near that hospital. The, the night doctors are going to snatch you. That was part of his narrative of his life. And that was in the 30s and 40s. And and I was kind of heartened that uh, a, a local scholar who teaches classes at, at the Virginia at Virginia Commonwealth had 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 done his own research. And he had talked to some young people you know, in their 20s. Who still had those those suspicions? Who still held those? So, in terms of COVID and and treatment and getting people to trust in medicine, um, these are issues that have to be addressed. I think they can be addressed, but I think they have to be. This has to be done in a in a really uh, sensitive and thoughtful way. Sure. Well, a few months after Bruce Tucker's death, the Medical College of Virginia transplanted a heart into an African American recipient. Can you tell us about that case? Yeah, Lewis Russell. Um, I love the case of Lewis Russell because, you know, after all the mistakes made with Bruce Tucker, I wanted to include for the purposes of objectivity that MCV did have a successful second heart transplant. And in that case, they did talk to a young man's family. And after the young man had been shot and he was African-American, happened to be, and they agreed to have his heart transplanted to this gentleman. Lewis Russell was a teacher. He was a shop teacher from Indianapolis, Indiana. And he became um, he became a just a wonderful spokesman for the actually for the American Heart Association. He lived I think about at least seven years and he was just a, a bright shining light and his 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 recovery went well and he uh, went back and taught school and then he became a you know, he became a chaplain for the Indianapolis Police Department. His wife was a wonderful uh, woman, uh, Thelma, and she was the first black uh, person to be a department store buyer in the Midwest. So they were just a great family. And um, I, I've, I, in the context of my book, I also mentioned you know, they were just public relations gold for MCV after having this terrible uh, first transplant. And they, and it was interesting to me. Jeff, as a reporter, to see how, you know, they re- reveal nothing about Tucker initially and much less later, really. But th- they they made the Russells really open to reporters and to the media. And it was just classic spin control. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, are you working on another book now? Um, I am working on the novel that I stopped writing to write this three years ago. I've been working on a... Uh, a book about uh, growing up in uh, the high desert of California in the mid sixties. Uh, and, it, and it's basically about uh, love and grief in uh, 1965 when I was a kid and I call it summer of satisfaction because that's the summer that the stones release satisfaction. That's great. Well, mm-hmm. What novels or nonfiction books have you enjoyed reading recently? Novels, um, I, nonfiction. Yeah, yeah, no, I love to read. Uh, I really like to read a, a, a mix of, of of nonfiction. I just I'm reading Douglas Brinkley's um, biography of Walter Cronkite, uh, which I find fascinating because it, he started out in Kansas City, and Brinkley gave me a nice blurb on my book, so I figured I better buy something by Douglas Brinkley. Tremendous book. Um, I love as a former English graduate student who started out in the Holland's Writings program. I love, re- uh, you know, returning to old authors like Hermann Hesse. Um, there's a tremendous uh, German biographer, uh, Decker, who wrote uh, Hesse, his, uh, his uh, The Wanderer and His Shadow. And I'm, it, 
it's so interesting how all of the pressures that Hess had as a novelist in twenties and thirties in Germany to go from being a writer to an activist, you know, hundred years later, uh, you know, pre-Nazi Germany has a lot of strange parallels to the things we've been going through here in America in the past few years. I've been fascinated by that. So I, I love kind of going back and forth. Uh, you know, Elmore Leonard, you know, if I'm at the beach, Elmore Leonard, um, and uh, Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. What a great memoir, you know, and that that actually I was reading that while I was writing this book because everything about South Africa and the and there's apartheid and the shameful attitudes, of, you know, toward people. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, 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 I like to read just I, I read El, Elton John's memoir, Me. I, I was I was amazed at what a good book that was. I'm a music fan, like a lot of people. Springsteen's Born to Run. So, you know, yeah, I do, Springsteen's Born to Run is amazing. Oh, oh my God! And I had a did, didn't you have the sense that he actually wrote it himself? I mean, oh, so, he did. He did. I mean, everything that I've read, he, he yeah. wrote every word himself. Yeah, everything is so ghost written, and I and uh, I had a feeling uh, Elton John at least read wrote most of it. But uh, I don't know. I, I go I go back back. I love to uh, go back and forth in history. Uh, I read Halberstam's The 50s, David Halberstam's The 50s, uh, when I was researching what happened to Eisenhower and his heart for my book. Um, and um, uh, there's, a, there's one writer who, who really helped me start to do narrative nonfiction who you don't hear much about anymore. Do you know the work of John Toland at all? Um, I've heard the name. I'm, I, I haven't read much. Well, I got to know John... Uh, several decades ago because you know, he, he won several Pulitzer Prizes, but he was one of the earliest practitioners of narrative nonfiction. And his book, The Rising Sun, about the Pacific War, mm-hmm. won the Pulitzer for history. Check it out. And he wrote the first book about Hitler, which is just called Hitler. It's a huge tome. He actually went back and lived where Hitler lived and uh, slept in the, the same garrets. And, and I was fortunate to know him because he actually wrote a novel later in his life where he used my father as his protagonist. Um, that's called Gods of War. So I got to know him pretty well. And the thing about John was, um, I was thinking about this before I came on. He had an ideogram above his desk that meant in Japanese, eliminate self. And that's pretty much what I tried to do in this book. Uh, you, you'll see me at the end visiting the son of Bruce Tucker and I kind of shifted the narrative. Uh, but John was always about letting the characters come alive in his, in his work. And it struck me thinking about how self-absorbed a lot of writers are now. It's like the opposite of, of now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so right. that, for what it's worth, that's, that, those are my influences. <laughs> yeah. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your book? Oh, chipjonesbooks.com. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Chip Jones, author of the book, The Organ Thieves, The Shocking Story of the First Heart Transplant in the Segregated South. The book is available now, so go buy a copy. And Chip, thanks for doing this interview. Hey, it's my pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Great. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.